Hey, good morning. Today, uh, Sunday, June 28th, uh, is the first of our Cornerstone on the Lawn. And so in this COVID reality, we've just decided it's better for the church to get together. And so this morning we are worshiping on the lawn, but uh, there are many of you who couldn't make it or you are traveling. Uh, Maybe you're not ready. Maybe you're sick. And uh, this is for you. It's also for those of you who maybe listened on Sunday, but kids are running around, the wind is blowing and wanted a chance to uh, re-listen or re-watch. And so uh, this is for you. I hope that uh, whoever you are, wherever you're watching this, uh, you're doing well. Uh, Maybe like many of us, you're just feeling tired or worn out or beaten up by life. I don't know if you feel like you belong in our church, uh, or maybe you're kind of feeling things out. I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with us. But I just want to say to whomever is watching that in the name of Jesus, uh, you're welcome, you're wanted in our church, and I hope that this message uh, just finds you well. In the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 begins, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they will be filled. And in these initial beatitudes, uh, Jesus is naming for us the principal beneficiaries of his kingdom. That the beaten up and the worn down and the run ragged are the people, the first people that he's, he's welcoming in, the first people who are going to uh, uh, be delighted by the incoming of his kingdom. And that's really good news for people like us, people who feel their own depravity or exhaustion or disappointed idealism, that Jesus has his eyes out for you, not because of anything you've done, but just in your being, he's come to lift up and to bind up uh, the brokenhearted. In the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, articulates how he so dignifies and empowers and transforms those he rescues that in apprenticing themselves to him, they naturally learn how to live in a way that's increasingly paradoxical and, and upside down. A kind of way that could be described with metaphors like salt and light, a city that's shining uh, on a hill. But these words from Jesus in in the Sermon on the Mount have largely been neglected by the American church. And this way of living, the Sermon on the Mount way of living has gone unpracticed and untested. And consequently, the American church is anemic and the world is skeptical of us as a result. Where you have admirers like Mahatma Gandhi who could say, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians are not like your Christ. Instead of a a costly obedience, many preachers have peddled the story of salvation that requires little more than a walk down the aisle or a raising of one's hand while leaving the rest of our lives untouched and unexamined. There's no moral incongruity between the gospel and greed or the gospel and hate or the gospel and violence if Christianity is chiefly about what happens to a person after they die while giving little attention to what they do when they live. It's a far cry from the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9 where he said, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. 
And so as a church, we reject a spirituality that demands only the recitation of a few magic words to secure one's eternal destiny, but then permits our our selfishness and consumerism and blind loyalty to our tribalistic echo chambers to set the agenda for our priorities and our standards of conduct. Instead, we humbly and we fearfully agree with Bonhoeffer that Christianity, learning to live in the way of Jesus, is the profoundest wound that can be inflicted on a man or a woman. It's a dying. It's a dying to self, uh, to sin, to idols, to other allegiances, and simultaneously arising to new life in Christ. This is what the songwriter Isaac Watts said hundreds of years ago. He's fearless of the world's despising. We, the ancient path, pursue, dying with our Lord and rising to a life divinely new. We stick to the old roads. We choose the ancient paths. In chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out this vision for kingdom ethics, and it's earthy. It deals with the details of our life. It deals with our emotions of anger and lust. It deals with our most intimate relationships, our words, our desire for revenge. And then Jesus ends the chapter by meddling into that uncomfortable territory of dealing with how we treat and regard our enemies. In chapter six of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out the secret behaviors that can sustain a community whose ambition is to live like this. And he talks about giving in secret, praying in secret, fasting in secret. And the goal here of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 is to cultivate in the hearts and the lives of his disciples such a robust inner life that it can bear the weight of the glory of our outer lives. And in the end, we've been talking about these contrasting images. On the one hand, of being like an iceberg where people can see a a portion of our lives, the the tip of, of our lives. But underneath in this subterranean existence, there's this mass of goodness and beauty and truth and discipline and character that people can't see. And wouldn't it be amazing if if everyone found out your secrets or my secrets and rather than being disheartened by what they learned about us, they were inspired. We want to have such a robust inner life that it can support and sustain our outer lives, an iceberg. Contrasting this is the image of a sinkhole where the weight of our outer lives is so great that the non-existent or paltry inner life that we have can't bear it and we collapse within ourselves. And this happens often when people have success too quickly. It happens when we attend only to the life that people can see and give little consideration to the life that goes unseen in our habits and our private life and our thoughts. We want to be the iceberg and not the sinkhole. In our teaching text today in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus seems to take what's apparently uh, at first read an unexpected turn, but we're going to see how all of this holds together. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. How are we to understand what Jesus is talking about here? Well, taken on its own, you might think that Jesus is advising us against savings accounts and 401ks. And that may well be something that he's calling you to do. We have precedent 
Jesus meets a rich young ruler who asks, what must I do to inherit the kingdom, to be saved? It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he said, go and sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor and then come and follow me. It may be that Jesus is calling you to do exactly this, to give up savings accounts and 401ks and give away all you have and follow him. But if you take it in the context of Matthew chapter six, Jesus himself has already told us what it looks like to store up for yourselves uh, treasures on earth. When we give publicly with a motivation of being seen, people think, oh, they're so generous. When we pray publicly and dramatically in order to showboat our spirituality and people think we're this humble spiritual creature, when we shrivel up and we contort ourselves into postures of misery so people know that we're fasting, we're stocking up on earthly rewards. It's doing the right things, but doing them for the wrong reasons to be seen and honored and acclaimed by other people. Earthly rewards are doing things for the like, for the pat on the back, uh, for the quick win. And being affirmed publicly, being praised publicly, or getting that like, getting that comment of approval is, is addicting. It feels really good when you go out on a limb and you, you write something or you share something on social media or you preach something outside on the lawn. You really want to see those smiles. You really want to feel that real-time feedback that says that that thing that you did is good and we like you. That real-time feedback of, of likes and hearts and comments can be so validating. But Jesus says to give up on this kind of treasure hunting, this kind of feedback and approval from others because it's perishable, it's cheap, it doesn't last. So if, if you want to keep your treasure chest full and you're going after this kind of approval, you're going to have to work yourself to the bone just to keep your head above water, just to keep up you know, the good vibes. This kind of treasure seeking leaves you a deeply insecure and needy person. It's like Michael Scott in the office. I enjoy being liked. I have to be liked, but it's not like this compulsive need to be liked, like my need to be praised. Jesus says, don't get all jazzed up about heaping up public praise and affirmation. It's, it's fleeting. But by contrast, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, treasures that are imperishable, treasures that are, are not given to alteration by fads, that are not vulnerable to a decay over time. How does one do this? How do you store up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Well, he's already given us uh, three examples in Matthew chapter six. It's doing the right things, maybe even doing them secretly, trusting that the only eyes that matter are on you. So therefore he could say, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door behind you. And when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that no one knows you're fasting. And your heavenly father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. It's been such a great learning experience for me, seeing how this chapter all flows together. He'll reward you. Don't store up for yourselves rewards, treasures in heaven. I think there are three hallmarks, at least, of, of heavenly treasure seeking, of storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. One of those is ambivalence to the approval of others. Uh, neither being too swayed by praise or criticism because you're not doing it for them. 
I know for me as a person who wants to please others, one of the first signs that I am losing my bearings, that I am getting stressed is I begin thinking a lot about what other people think of me. It's a yellow flag or, or a red flag. And I know when that happens, it's time to recalibrate my motivation. The first hallmark of heavenly treasure seeking is ambivalence to the approval of others. I'm not doing this for them. The second hallmark of heavenly treasure seeking is an embrace of delayed gratification, uh, especially in a world right now where we are used to real time instantaneous feedback. Our, our brains have been hardwired for immediate gratification. Uh, especially, you know, when things like um, the DVR came out, we began using the language of stuff being on demand, content being on demand. Uh, this also describes not only how we consume media, but just how we operate in life. I want life to go the way I want it to go on demand in this moment. I want your approval right now. I don't want to have to live with the vulnerability of wondering if I'm doing okay. But with storing up treasures in heaven, there's this acceptance that you might not see the fruit and the reward for good behavior anytime soon. You might do the right thing and absolutely no one's going to know about it. And you learn to be okay with it. You're taking the long view. When a 25 year old opens up a Roth IRA and starts sending 50 bucks a month into that Roth IRA, it doesn't feel all that rewarding especially in your 20s when you're watching all your dollars, you're sending that away. There's no quick win in the process. But man, you fast forward 40 years and those small and those secret investments over time become something great, something that puts you in a position to share with others. It pays off. Doing the right things and knowing that the right eyes are on you pays long-term dividends and it even becomes its own reward along the way. The first hallmark of heavenly treasure seeking is, is an ambivalence to the approval of others. Uh, the second hallmark of this is an embrace of delayed gratification. And the third hallmark of, of heavenly treasure seeking is just a resolution to please your heavenly father. Jesus said, I only do what I see my father doing. He says, my food, my, the thing that sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me. He prayed it in the, in the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter six, your kingdom come and your will be done. It becomes the food of the apprentice of Jesus. The, uh, the, the thing that sustains is Lord, may I please you. May I honor you and how I live. And may that be enough for me, whether anyone else sees the downside of cultivating a rich secret life and making that ambition, the downside of, of storing up for yourselves heavenly treasures is no one is there in the moment to tell you just how awesome you are and feel really good about yourself. But the upside of this kind of way of living, the upside of, uh, of, of making it your ambition to store up uh, heavenly treasures is in increasing measure, you are liberated from the tyranny of being a person who needs other people to tell you how great you are all the time just to be okay. And you can count on, on a lasting, imperishable reward from your heavenly father who loves to give good gifts to his children in this life and in the life to come. Uh, the pastor Max Lucado wrote a book called You Are Special. It's a, it's a children's book. 
And in the book, he tells uh, the story of this world of wooden puppets called Wimmicks who go around all day with this little box full of gray dots and gold stars. And the golden stars you give out to those who are pretty and who are popular and who are talented and who are impressive to others. And they are covered in gold stars. The gray dots are for those who are weak, for those who stumble, whose, whose paint is beginning uh, to chip off, those who don't impress easily. And in the world of Lucado's creation, there's this one Wimmick named Punchinello who was burdened and brokenhearted by his gray dot existence. He just wasn't as likable, he wasn't as talented, wasn't as powerful as some of the other Wimmicks, and it showed on his body as it was dotted with these little gray stickers that had been given out to him by his peers. One day, Punchinello meets a Wimmick who has neither dots nor stars. And it wasn't that people didn't try to give them to her, it's just that when they did, they didn't stick. And eager to find out her secret, Punchinello follows this unusual Wimmick to the home of the master carpenter. And it was in spending time with him that she became unlabeled and unburdened of the opinions of other creatures, other wooden puppets. It was in learning of the implicit approval of her maker and living in light of that reality that she became less sticky to the stickers of others. And in our world where we can quantify our power and our likability and our net worth and try along the way to call that significance, Jesus invites us to discover instead the treasure that's buried in a field for which a man will give everything he owns to lay hold of it. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, he said, Command those who are rich in the present world. And if you have the luxury of hearing this or seeing this over the internet, you're in one of the top percentages of wealthy people in all history. Paul says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with uh, everything we need for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Let those with ears to hear hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will liberate us from the tyranny of needing the constant approval of other people. Liberate us from the burden of feeling like we need to compete socioeconomically, of needing to feel like we need to have the newest car, the newest house, the newest assets, go on the best vacations in order to compete and find our bearing in social society. And help us, Lord Jesus, to learn the food that you ate. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and let that be enough for us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to grow in increasing measure ambivalent and indifferent to the approval of others. Help us to be resolute in learning to please you and certainly okay with delayed gratification. And Lord Jesus, as, as we go into this week, may we find you faithful as we learn to trust you, as we surrender our fears and our anxieties. May we find that you are more than enough for us. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for watching or listening. If you're able to join us on a Sunday morning, Cornerstone is on the lawn. 
915 Sundays at 4803 South Lewis. Hope to see you soon. See you around. Bye.